This is a Federal News Network podcast. Judging by its employees' 100% participation in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, the Marine Mammal Commission is an engaging agency. It might be the smallest with 12 people. And besides filling out surveys, what else do they do there? For more, we turn to its executive director, Peter Thomas. Mr. Thomas, good to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. And I guess uh, I was drawn by the fact that OPM mentioned that all of your employees, all 12 of them, had filled out the FEVs. And do you know for a fact that you're the smallest federal agency? That's my conclusion. There might be somebody smaller. Yeah, I think the Marine Mammal Commission is definitely a small agency. We're a micro agency. We have lots of names for what we are. But I think there are smaller agencies that aren't actually captured in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And what is the mission of the Marine Mammal Commission? So the Marine Mammal Commission is an independent government agency. We're charged by the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which was passed by Congress in 1972, to further the conservation of marine mammals and their environment. And interesting, we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary of providing science-based oversight over domestic and international the, the policies and actions of the federal government which are designed to address human impacts on marine mammals and their ecosystems. I think it might be good right now to say what's a marine mammal under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. They include the cetaceans, those are the whales, dolphins, porpoises, beaked whales, killer whales of all sizes from you know four or five feet long up to 90, 100 feet long. It includes what are called the pinnipeds, those are the seals, the sea lions, and the walruses. Then the Cyrenians, think of the sirens of ancient Greek myths like the manatees and dugongs. And then a couple of carnivores are thrown in, the polar bears and the sea otters. So we cover a wide range of marine mammal species. And what is the state of marine mammaldom these days? <laughs> it's a very mixed state. I think the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the, what's the moratorium on commercial whaling, which was passed, again, almost 50 years ago, had a big impact on the large whales, which were pretty much being decimated toward extinction. Many of those whale species are recovering, but others, such as the North Atlantic right whale off the east coast of the United States, is still in a very precarious position. So we follow over 100 species of marine mammals and the range of status is really variable. And is there pretty good international cooperation? I recall some years ago there was a dispute with Japan over whale harvesting. Yeah, I think the international consensus has moved toward, you know, f- feeling that we can make more money off whale watching than we can make off killing whales for meat or oil. I'm actually participating this week in the meeting of the International Whaling Commission Scientific Committee, which has gone from focusing on, okay, how many can you kill over a certain time and still maintain populations, kind of a basic wildlife management approach, to much broader discussion of the issues of ecosystem management, how to manage whale watching, in fact, which 50 years ago nobody imagined would be an economic activity. There's cooperation there, but actually Japan left the International Whaling Commission now two years ago or so. And so that's an area of uncertainty for those concerned with marine mammal conservation. 
And the day-to-day work of the agency, therefore, is research, or maybe I should say researching the research that's going on with respect to these different species and then formulating recommendations? Yeah, well, we're kind of a mixture of an oversight agency and a think tank. So we interact with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Those are the two agencies with the regulatory responsibility under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. But we also, in you know, really facilitating the conversations that need to happen or supporting, we have a small research grant, supporting research that will delve into areas of either new research or questions about conservation. We also deal with the Navy. We deal with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, U.S. Geological Survey, anyway, a number of other federal agencies, and even with state and local and tribal entities. There was an issue a few years ago with the Navy, and I don't know whatever happened there, but they were using some sort of really powerful sonar to detect other submarines, and that was interfering with, I think, some of the life mechanisms of marine mammals. Yeah, the issue of sound and anthropogenic sound, that's sound produced by humans in the ocean, is a big area of concern. It's also a big area of research. And so we comment really from a very technical side on activities related to Navy sonar, related to the use of seismic air guns to explore for oil on the continental shelf, really to develop, I hate this term, but the mitigation measures. You know, what are the measures that the Navy or the oil companies, the exploratory companies can take to reduce the impact of their activities on marine mammals and other marine life? And that sort of goes to our role, which is a kind of a centric role. We're not an environmental group and we're not an industry group. We're really charged by the Marine Mammal Protection Act to look after the interests of marine mammals and what's called the taking of marine mammals, whether through killing them or injuring them or harassing them. We're speaking with Peter Thomas. He's executive director of the Marine Mammal Commission. And how did you come to this work personally? Well, it's interesting. I've got kind of an interesting government story. I know your focus is on the federal agencies. And so I've always been a naturalist. I've always been interested in biology and ecology and pursued a career as a biologist. But early on, when I was at Carleton College in Minnesota, I had a professor named Paul Wellstone, who ended up being the famous Senator Paul Wellstone, who campaigned around Minnesota in a famous green bus. Well, I took his kind of introductory government and community organization class, sort of sat through it. It was a requirement. But at the end, I, you know, I got the exam. I just nailed the exam, and the Wellstone put on it. He said, A plus, who are you? I was just shy, and I was into ecology and conservation, so I didn't pay attention. It took probably 12 years to figure out that he had really spotted my strength, and I spent years on the cliff doing whale research up in the Beaufort Sea on ships going around looking for bowhead whales. And then one year back in Minnesota, actually, I got involved in a policy issue related to keeping marine mammals at the Minnesota Zoo, and I really loved it. And I guess I got an A-plus on that work because people began to tell me, you actually like people and working with people. And so I got a AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science and Diplomacy Fellowship, to come here to work at the State Department. 
and I loved it. I just got right into the work. I really loved the policy, the science, mixing it all together. When I first got here, we were doing orientation on Capitol Hill, and I see this guy coming toward me. It's Paul Wellstone. He, had, he was a wrestler. He had a very distinct walk. And I go, Paul. He goes, who are you? I said, and so I told him the story about the A-plus, who are you? And he said, I remember that. That was sort of <laughs> emblematic of my career moving into government. And, you know, I've been here now for, I think, 30 years working at the State Department, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and now back to marine mammals at the Marine Mammal Commission. Wow. So not too many people can say they pursue a passion in all of these different formats, and yet you have been able to. Yeah, I'm really lucky. And can I just ask you about the manatees? Because I worry about them in Florida. Oh, sure, sure. And sure. <laughs> there's a bill, I think, uh, co-sponsored by Florida Representative Brian Mast to take mm-hmm. more measures to protect manatees. How are they doing these days? Well, the manatees at the moment have been declared a, an unusual mortality event, which uh, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, there's a whole section on marine mammal health and stranding. When you have one of these times when you see a lot of dead dolphins, manatees, whatever, sea lions, whatever it might be, they have a formal process to really evaluate what's going on. So we've had over the last several months pretty large die-off of manatees on the east side of Florida. Again, they're working on figuring out what exactly is going on. It could very well be a lack of food. Sometimes it's cold water events that stun manatees. But it's a good example of the processes set in place by the Act to get the answers. And it also shows we actually have spent time with some of the Florida congressional delegations to talk to them in our role as a congressionally established agency, tiny little agency. We spend a lot of time up on the Hill talking with different congressional delegations from different states about what are the issues in your area and what might be done. And a final question for this little tiny agency of 12 people. What do you look for in people that want to work at the Marine Mammal Commission? Well, actually, Tom, you sent along a question about what was the uh, sort of a fun fact I could tell about marine mammals. And so I sent it out to my 14 staff. And I think we, the fun fact is that we are probably the greatest concentration of marine mammal nerds in the D.C. area, actually spread out now because of the pandemic, but, uh, and I got great answers. You know, one is that whales are so long-lived. Uh, there are bowhead whales who've been found to live 200 years or more. There are killer whales swimming around right now who are 95 years old, 90, 95 years old, out off of Puget Sound and the West Coast. So we look for scientific expertise. We also look for, I I would say, we look for people who are just really excited about contributing to the science and conservation, not just of marine mammals, but of the marine environment. So you could have a T-shirt that says, Thar She Blows. Yeah, we could. (laughs) We sure could. Peter Thomas is Executive Director of the Marine Mammal Commission. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Glad to talk anytime. Really appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.